So this is one of the more um, difficult parts of the book to outline. I, I want to, we're, we're, we're picking up kind of at the end of chapter 42. And I actually want to take, if, if, we'll see how it all goes, but I want to take a larger, a little bit larger section today that's kind of an in-between section. So when, I, uh, when, when we met last week, what I said was that the, the key focal point of this whole section, after you get through chapter 40 and 41, where the Lord announces that he's going to restore the people and that he can do it because he's so much more powerful than anyone else, um, then you start to ask the question, well, how's he going to do it? And the answer that's given, the, the big answer that's given is he's going to do it through his servant. And that leads us into these four servant songs. And I, I put them up on the board last week, but I'll just review. The first one is at the beginning of chapter 42. The second one is in chapter 49, then 50 and 52. So there's this gap, or, or it's not really a gap, but there's this, there's this space between 42 and 49 your first uh, uh, servant song and your second servant song. And that's what I want to look at today, this kind of space in between. Now, the, the servant songs themselves follow a very particular formula. It's very, um, you know, it's, 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 it's obvious once you see it. There's a, an introduction of who the servant is, or, or oftentimes the Lord speaking to the servant, addressing the servant. Uh, and, then, and then there's a commentary on in a sense, what he does, or, or why this matters. And each one, each of the servant songs follows that, except the, the last one, we're not there yet, but th this is the one that you know the most, which is Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant. And that's kind of the one that really, uh, in the book of Isaiah, comes as a bit of a surprise and a shock, and it's obviously really central to our um, understanding of who Jesus is. And and that one is similar in formula, but instead of having just introduction and then commentary, it actually has kind of introduction, commentary, and then introduction again. It's, 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 we'll, we'll get there, but there's a, there's a reason for that. Anyway, all right, so, so you've got these servant songs. That's kind of the main action of this section, but there is this, there is this section in between and it addresses the same question that the servant songs address, which is, how is it that the mighty God, the creator God, the God of Isaiah 40, how is it that he's going to rescue his people? And, and what is he doing even now to rescue them? That's, that's the question. And again, the big answer, the, you know, the, the first answer that should be rolling off our, our lips is he's going to save them through the servant, through his servant. But there's more going on than that. There's a little more uh, nuance to it that these, that these chapters unpack for us. Now, so far so good? All right. Uh, now, now, there are some, some other things that we need to be aware of in order to make sense of these chapters. And this is going to... We've got a kind of track here. Um, we've already seen the servant, this word servant, used at least two different ways. We've seen it used, if you remember back in 41, we saw it used for God's people. And they're referred to in a bunch of different ways. If you, if you want to look back at that, that's in verses 8 through 10 of Isaiah 41. But they're people, it's a collective. And, um, and, and they happen to be the people 
who get saved through the coming judgment, if you remember chapter 41. So we've seen servant used for God's people. Um, and then, and they're, they're called Israel here. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they are. But we'll, we'll just put that here so you remember that it's collective. Um, and, then, and then we've seen in our first servant song in verse 42, we've seen the word servant be used for a singular individual, namely this, I mean, it doesn't use the word Messiah in, in chapter 42 of Isaiah, but that's, that's who we're talking about. So I'll just say Messiah. And, it's, and, and now we're talking about a singular. Um, now there's going to be, th this, is where, this is where this section kind of is woven together, and you can see how it's woven together. But it can get a little tricky if you're not really tracking with all the threads. The, the word servant we're going to see is, is going to be applied to yet a third person um, in this section. And this is going to be a really strange one. And, and, and we're going to have to talk about the meaning of it. But the Lord's actually going to apply this term. He's going to use it again for the people um, in this section. But then he's also going to toggle back and forth between using it for the people and using it for Again, a singular person, but in this case, not the Messiah, but actually, and he names him, Cyrus, who is a, a later Persian king, um, great Persian king. Now, um, so, so that, that's, I, I'm laying it all out there because it's, it's kind of confusing enough when you see it on the board, but when you're reading through it, it can get even more confusing and, and you can sort of, it really easily, if you, if you lose your focus, you can sort of uh, lose the whole, the whole thread. Um, so, that's, that's a key word, that word servant. Um, and then, again, remember what the key theme is that we're trying to get at, which is how is it that God is going to do the restoration that he promised to do in chapter 41? We know he can do it because he's God and because... The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Remember in Isaiah 40. So we know he's going to do it. We can have confidence. But the question is how? And the big answer is through his chosen messianic servant. But there, there's, you know, there's a little more to it than that. Particularly in the, the near term from the perspective of Judah and Jerusalem to whom Isaiah is preaching. All right, so does that, does that all make sense? You kind of understand where we are, you oriented. Any questions about any of that? Um, okay, so let's see how he, he then explains how this is going to happen. Um, in Isaiah, at the end of verse chapter 42, so let's say like beginning in verse 18, all the way through most of chapter 43, what he's going to say is, He's going to refer to Israel again as his servant. So we're talking here about the collective, my people, he says. Isn't, I, I, he, he sometimes calls them Israel, sometimes just calls them my people. But, but what he's going to say about the, this, them now is that they are people right now who are, um, are blind to everything he's doing. That they, are, uh, they aren't really listening to him. And that's important because at the end of this section, right before the next servant song, he's going to give them a command or, or kind of a, I, I, I can't remember whether it's a, uh, an imperative or not, but basically he's going to say, 
um, you should have listened. So he starts, he's going to start off by saying, you're not listening. And at the end, he's going to say, you should have listened. But here's where he begins. Look at 42, 18. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake, and that's referring to the Lord's righteousness, to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes, hidden in prisons. They've become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come. So the current situation among God's people is that they're headed for judgment. Now we know it's not going to be the Assyrians. We've gotten through all that Hezekiah business. We know it's not going to be the Assyrians who are going to take them out, even though the Assyrians took out the northern kingdom. But it's going to be the Babylonians. We know that. And so this is, this is God's diagnosis of the people. That you are, uh, and he again starts off by calling them the servant. Um, you are, uh, you're not listening. You're headed for destruction. And you've, there, I've shown you and told you many things. But you're not listening. It's, it's kind of like, um, you know, if, if you've ever been in a classroom setting where this has happened, where the teacher is really frustrated. And the teacher is, you know, has been teaching the, you know, 45 minutes or something. And he gets to the end and maybe someone just asks a really stupid question that they should have known. Because that's all he's been talking about. And, and you can imagine the teacher getting frustrated and just saying, you guys aren't listening. I've explained this to you now five times. You're not paying attention. You're not listening. And that's what the Lord says here to the people of Jerusalem. I've explained it to you. I've shown it to you. You're not paying attention. You're not listening to me. So what, what's going to happen is they're going to be judged. And the Lord's going to go on to delineate. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But uh, he's going to delineate the fact that they will be taken into exile but look at um, verse 2 of Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Because I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. And... He says, essentially, here's what I'm going to do. You're going to get taken into exile, but I'm going to restore you. Um, so exile's coming, but so is national restoration. Now, and I'm not again, I won't read through the whole thing, but um, but that's what he describes basically in chapter 43. Um, now, one of the principles that Isaiah is working hard to teach the people of Jerusalem. And, and, he, and he's working hard to teach us as well. The Lord is working hard to teach us as well. Is that the restoration that God promises from judgment and the protection from judgment always is accompanied by spiritual restoration and renewal as well. So in other words, for them, um, let, me, let me just put it this way. Return 
from exile, or at one point Isaiah calls this a second exodus, like the exodus from Egypt, return from exile is always accompanied with, I don't want to use an equal sign to mean it's the same thing as, it's not, but it's, it's, it's connected. There must be a mathematical symbol for what I'm looking for. I, don't, I just don't know what it is. But I'm going to, say, I'm going to use this. It, it is connected with, it's always, it always goes hand in hand with spiritual restoration or spiritual renewal. Now let me just talk about this a little bit and, and tell you how this plays out in the rest of the Old Testament. When um, Nehemiah, so we're going forward a couple hundred years. When Nehemiah, and Ezra really is more important, but Ezra and Nehemiah um, bring back the exiles. And Nehemiah does it directly in response to the, um, to the edict of Cyrus, who we're going to meet here in Isaiah. When they, bring, when they bring back the Israelites during the time of Cyrus, um, the, the, the issue then is this has, seems to have partially happened because the people are now back in the land. And remember in Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuilt the walls and they rebuilt the temple and they're, they're worshiping in there. But the question, the big question that's looming over Ezra and Nehemiah, and you can see this in their prayers, if you want to look, um, you can look at this this afternoon. Look at Ezra 9 or Nehemiah 9, where they pray about the situation. What, what Ezra and Nehemiah say, and they're very perceptive spiritually, and the books make this really clear, that even though the people have been brought back to some degree, this hasn't happened. That, that they're still as kind of as bad as ever. So if you remember the ending of, if you, I don't know if you read Nehemiah or read it, recently, but if you remember the ending of Nehemiah, the ending of Nehemiah in Nehemiah 13, they're back in the land, there's a temple, there's a, there's a wall, but Nehemiah basically just rehearses all the things that are wrong, and there's a lot of things that are wrong. There's a, you know, they've got, the temple is defiled, there, there's there's intermarriage with, with uh, pagans, there's, there's they're, they're taking advantage of you, there's a bunch of stuff wrong. And Nehemiah just basically at the end says, Lord, just remember, remember the good I've done. You know, he sort of throws up his hands at the end of the book. Because what, what Ezra and Nehemiah know is that the real second exodus, the real renewal, there is an important thing that happens under Cyrus where the exile kind of gets cut a little bit. But the real renewal that they're looking for, the real second exodus that they're looking for, involves spiritual awakening among the people. And it doesn't happen in Ezra and Nehemiah. I mean, there are little fits and starts that people sometimes hear a good sermon and say, we're going to do this, we're going to change. And then the next page you realize they haven't changed at all. It's worse. Um, so why do I bring all this up? Because Isaiah is the one who establishes this connection really closely. It's actually already established in Deuteronomy 30. But Isaiah... Isaiah um, goes on to describe it. So, so look at this, look at what I mean here. Um, if none of this is making sense, look at what I mean. So he talks about this, um, this uh, national redemption that the Lord's going to do. And, and he says, um, but then, but then look at 43 beginning in verse 22. 
Um, yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. So, so I brought you back and restored you, um, but you didn't call upon me. You've not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honor me with your sacrifice, etc., etc. 25, verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, this is 44.1, Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of of Israel, and then he's going to say, "This this is going to be proof that I am who I say I am." So let me lay it out. What Isaiah says in the near term, our only hope is the is the Messiah. But in the near term, what God's going to do, because Israel isn't listening, is he's going to take them into exile. But then he's going to restore them. But that's not in, in, that the military. Uh, um, kind of freedom isn't really the key thing because what they really need for it to be a true restoration is renewed hearts. And he, and he has this, this little interlude at the end of 43 and the beginning of 44 that's almost exactly what Ezra and Nehemiah see, which is that people come back, but they still aren't listening. But the Lord says, don't worry, even though I've, ha I've had it with you, don't despair because you're get, there are going to be descendants of yours, seed that come from you, that will... Um, that will actually call upon my name and actually love me. And that's the amazing thing. It's not just that the Lord will rescue them militarily, but that the Lord will actually pour out His Spirit upon them and change them so that they'll be spiritually um, renewed on the inside. And they'll, really, and they'll really serve Him and really worship Him. And see, this is, this is why I brought up Ezra and Nehemiah, because you get to the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, and you see kind of part of, this, but not the whole thing. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are really clear. This spiritual pouring out that the Lord promised, we're just not seeing it. It's just not happening. Of course there are believers, but um, but in a, in a kind of widespread way, it's it's not what we were expecting. Yeah? Yeah, do you see this, like the outpouring of the Spirit versus the contrast with the current state in terms of most of Israel is unregenerate, but then they're going to be, or do you see it as well, it's not really weighing in on regeneracy. It's just kind of a general revival, which may include both regeneration yeah. and sanctification. Sure. Yeah, I think, I don't know if Isaiah has a really clear dis, uh, distinction that he's making between regeneration and sanctification. But, you know, the way I see it is that the Lord's saying, the people who I'm dealing with now, um, by and large, you know, there are exceptions. Isaiah is an exception, right? Ezra is an exception in his day. But there are, by and large, are just not responsive. But I am going to, there will come a time when I will have a people who will actually be called by my name and actually have my spirit poured out among them. And that, that spirit poured out among them would be, I think, both, you know, because that's the thing, right? Even regeneration and sanctification, even though we talk about them theologically, you never have one without the other, 
right? You never have true sanctification unless there's been new birth. And new birth always leads to sanctification. So I think there's a kind of both and to that question. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, if I'm hearing you right, though, the issue is you got people basically aren't believers. Yeah, they're not. And, but that's going to change. That's exactly right. Yeah. They're not believers. You can tell they're not true worshipers. I mean, that's kind of what he points out. But, um, yeah, they're not believers. They might have, this is the thing, though, that's actually really instructive for us today. Because probably everyone sitting under Isaiah's ministry, at least, you know, in these sermons, would have checked off the box that said, you know, I'm a, I follow Yahweh. They, they would have, if the census came around, they would have checked off, you know, Christian or something. So, so, um, so that's the interesting thing to, to your question. Uh, what the Lord says when he looks at them is, you say you're worshiping me, but I don't see any worship. You say that you follow me, but then you've got all these idols. You don't really follow me. You actually follow them. So there is, a, it, there is a really sharp edge to it when you think about it. Because he's calling them unbelievers and idol worshipers. But to a man, I, I, as far as we can tell from the book, everyone sitting under Isaiah's ministry would have said they were uh, of the Lord. And so that's, that should be a wake-up call. That, that's why Isaiah really is a stirring wake-up call for us. So you're not off the hook if you just say, oh, well, yeah, yeah, of course, you know, I follow the Lord. Well, so did they. Or they would have said that. They just didn't. Um, so that's a good question. Other, other questions or comments along these lines? It, does it not yet transfer? Now, I'm not in with the, a lot of Jewish people or anything, but... I have worked with them, especially when I was in Florida. Yeah. And they almost still have that attitude. It's like they're a little above. And I remember this one lady, she just, you know, wouldn't cooperate with anything that we had to do. Right. And she's like, you know, that's beneath me or something. Yeah. And I thought to myself, no wonder they wandered in the wilderness yeah. for 40 years. It's true of us, though, too. I mean, this is the thing. It, I, I know what you're saying, but it's, it can be true of any... It, this that what you describe is is a is a certainly something that the Lord aims at at um, at His people. But the thing is, um, it, I think it's anyone who has a degree of spiritual presumption, right? I mean, I, I think there could be many people today in Christian churches um, who have that kind of presumption, and and so. You're right that that's the kind of the, the key one of the key sins that's pulled out pride. I mean, we're going to get there, but the Lord's going to zero in on that. And say this is the issue, but He's also going to say this is the issue with the Babylonians. You know, the, the, and 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 the scary part is for the people in Jerusalem is the Lord saying you're just like the Babylonians. Um, so so yes, I would say I would say yes to what you're saying, but I don't think it's peculiar. Mm -hmm. I think it's I think that's the presumption that. The Lord picks out in a number of people, and I think that the Lord might very well pick out among among many professing Christians today. But they can say, I mean, to me, if you just casually read the Bible, yeah, they're just going to be the rulers of the world. They're going to be the top. They're God's chosen people. Yes. So, so when all said and done, they're going to be on top. If you're, if you don't have, yeah, I, I know what you mean. It could, you, it, it could, it could easily be a trap. It could easily be a trap that any Jewish person could, could run into in reading the scriptures. 
But you're right. But but my only th- point is to say that same trap and that same um, um, condemnation or, or, or accusation is one that the Lord gives against a whole, a whole range of people. Because, because every empire thinks that same thing. That's one of the things that the, the Bible teaches us as well. And they're all wrong. Um, they're all brought down by the Lord eventually. So, yes, if, if the point is to say, you know, pride is the great enemy, that's absolutely right. And, 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 and Israel fell into it and, and had in many cases still fallen into it. Um, so that's absolutely true. So it's interesting. We're going to get to this Babylon part and, 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 and you'll see it dovetails almost exactly with what you're saying. Um, okay, so, uh, so, so they need spiritual renewal. That's the point. Now, that's going to happen, and the Lord outlines how that's going to happen in most of chapter 44. And he talks about idolatry, and we've, we've actually read a little bit of this before, but I just want to read it because it's, it's very, well, it's just, it's just classic. It's a, it's a classic section of scripture on idolatry. I'm going to begin in 44.9 and just read through it without too much comment. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. And this is the problem, right? Many of these Israelites were idolaters. Their witnesses um, neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. And here's this little illustration. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with a plane and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and Let's it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles the fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burn in the fire. I also bake bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Now see, this is... This is the application section of the sermon. Because, because what the people in exile are going to need and receive is the Lord rescuing them. And the, the real second exodus is the Lord pouring out his spirit on them. But then see, Isaiah turns to the people who are listening to all that and says, Now, now here's, here's a takeaway for you. Takeaway for you is if that's what you need, and if you get excited when I preach about that, about the pouring out of the Spirit upon you, number one, that shows you need the Spirit, right? 
But also, also what it shows is that um, it shows the futility of what you're doing right now. Because what you're doing right now, I know what's happening inside your, behind closed doors. I know what's happening out in, out in the fields and out in the forest. What's happening is you're bowing down to idols. And think about this for a minute. I've just preached to you about the spirit being poured out upon you to transform you. And yet, and yet, many of you are partaking in this absurd kind of uh, worship where, where you've, you've paid someone to, to make something out of metal for you. Or maybe even worse, you took a tree and you cut it down and half of it you used to, to cook your meal and half of it you carved into a little god and then bowed down to it. And so, and so that's the kind of contemporary, both contemporary then and contemporary now, the contemporary application. If this is what is needed, especially this that only the Lord can do, and really only the Lord can do that as well. But if this is what is needed, then... Then idols, they have to be taken out of your life. You have to utterly abhor them. They're an abomination. There's no room for them in the spiritual life. There's no room for them because, for one thing, they, you know, they don't hear, they don't see, they can't do anything for you. Um, all they're doing, all these idols are doing, is taking you away from your only hope of salvation. Are the only possibility you have, and see, this is the this is still the application today. If you if you say to yourself, the what I need in life, what the, the the spiritual needs that I have, the needs in terms of eternity, but even the needs in terms of right now, those are needs that only God can meet, and the need for transformation that I have, which is which we all experience if we're honest with ourselves, that need for transformation is a need that only God can meet by His Spirit. There's no other chance. And so, if that's true, then there's not any room for, for idols. There's no room for rivals. They're all just a fraud anyway, and they're, they're made up by human hands. They might look good, um, they might have a certain a superficial appeal to them, but, but you, you, he's, he's showing the essential incompatibility between between trusting in the Lord for this salvation and then turning to an idol at the same time. And this idol section, this application section, stands on its own, but um, but it, uh, you know, especially it, it, it stands out in such sharp contrast to, to what he's just said about what the Lord's going to do. The Lord's going to give you all this. He's going to totally save you, body and soul. And, and, uh, and he's the only one who can do that. And so, turn away from all idols. Just cast them aside. They're worthless, and you're going to become just like them if you keep if you keep uh, following them. And it, it is interesting because this is one of the little subtexts in virtually every passage of the scriptures that talks about idols, which is number one, they can't do anything for you. They just demand things from you, and then they they never pay off. But also, um, uh, you actually become like them. And, and what he means by that is, you know how they can't hear or see? Uh, it, you get to the point where now you can't hear or see because you're so hardened by your sin. And actually, you see this um, in, in the lives of many people that you know, I'm sure, 
You might even see it sometimes developing in your own heart. You have to be ruthless with that. Because what, what you see in people is that they, they go down a road of false worship for so long. This is, uh, actually dovetails with, with the point you're making. They go down a, 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 a road of false worship for so long that, you know, the Lord can always break through. But, but you, you sort of feel like we're just not even like looking at the same universe anymore. Um, we, we can't, you know, we can't even agree on the color of the sky anymore. Like it, it, it's just, it, there's no, there's no hearing or sight that's taking place. And so that, that happens. And the Bible talks about that happening, um, directly in relation to the, the degree to which idols are worshiped. Now, the great, um, the great, uh, uh, you know, praise, hymn of praise that, that, that comes up um, then in verse 21 or, or the great maybe closing, closing hymn that Isaiah gives is, um, begins this way, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel, and you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. This is what second exodus is. And your sins like mist return to me because I have redeemed you. And then sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it, etc., etc. Um, so, so this second exodus, spiritual renewal, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we've seen that language, is also this total forgiveness of sins. And the Lord is going to um, bring that about for his people, he says. Um, now, that's, that's sort of the, what the Lord's doing for his people. So, so if, uh, if we want to think of it this way, like the, the 40,000 foot view, how's God going to redeem his people is through his servant, the Messiah. Then you want to get down to 20,000 feet. How's he going to do it? Well, through national restoration, but more importantly, uh, through the outpouring of his spirit and forgiveness of sins. Now you want to get down to the 10,000 foot view or the 1,000 foot view. How's that going to happen? Um, the answer is in chapter 45, a future king named Cyrus. So does that make sense? He's moved, we're moving from like the, the meta view down to the more granular view to answer the question of chapter 40 and 41, which is, we have this great God and his great word that never returns void, um, and he promises he's going to restore how. Boom, boom, boom. That's, that's how. So let's get down to the thousand foot view and talk about Cyrus. Now, I've mentioned um, he's going to be called the servant again. All of these are, as I said, it's kind of a, thread that holds them all together, this servant language. But um, God's going to use Cyrus. And this is remarkable. And in fact, if you, if you um, look at scholarship of Isaiah, recent scholarship, this never really came up before, either among Jews or Christians, but um, recent scholarship, critical scholarship of Isaiah coming out of Germany in the middle to late 19th century reads this and says um, 
this cannot be, this can't actually be said when it's claimed to have been said. In other words, Isaiah the prophet says it, but it's too specific uh, and it prophetic. But, you know, there's zero evidence, and we didn't spend any time on this um, early in the class, but we could have. There's zero evidence for um, different books of Isaiah. Um, we see the themes develop and change, but it's all the same linguistic features. You know, the, 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 um, the Qumran scroll, the Dead Sea Scrolls, scroll of Isaiah is just one big scroll and you can you can read the Hebrew and 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 the sections that people that modern scholars say must be different from different eras it's just straight through and it's you know 250 BC that scroll so but but one of the reasons they say it is because it's too it's too correct it's too it's like reading history but you're reading it prophetically well I think I think there's a good explanation for that but Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, um, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break into pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that as I the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by my name. Here's why I'm doing it. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So basically what the Lord says is the way I'm going to bring my people back from exile in Babylon is through a king in the future who doesn't know me and who won't know me, but nonetheless is going to do exactly what I'm ordaining for him to do. And that's going to not just be for him to conquer the known world, which, which Cyrus the great Persian king does do, but but also that that's how my people are going to go back, and, and and it's remarkable to go and to read you know Chronicles or uh, you know the end of Second Chronicles or the beginning of Nehemiah because it's like it just almost seems too easy. Nehemiah prays, Lord, please let me go back with some people, and then he goes in and. Cyrus gives a decree. And Ezra, you know, Ezra's going back. Cyrus, you know, it's, it's no problem. So, so the point is, um, it's, it's, a, it, it's, this, it's this kind of easy, uh, it seems easy at the time, but it's because the Lord had ordained the whole thing. So um, the way the Lord's going to do this is through Cyrus, his chosen servant, and it's meant to, and the Lord's going to allow Cyrus to conquer all these lands, and he goes to delineate all the lands he conquers, which is why some modern critical scholars think it's sort of too good to be true. And and um, and all, but all of it's really for his purposes and and for his people. Um, so what's the what's the kind of um, uh, application of this well it's in verse 22 of isaiah 45 
which is, he says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And if that rings a bell, it should, because those words in the mouth of Yahweh about what all the ends of the earth are going to do when he brings about his salvation um, are exactly the words that Paul quotes from when in Philippians 2 he talks about Christ and Christ's humiliation and then exaltation. And you know how Philippians 2 ends because he says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess or swear allegiance. But but then it's... it's um, it's that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so uh, what Isaiah prophesies, Paul says, yes, that's going to happen. And the focal point of it all is going to be Jesus. Um, so Paul knew what was going on here, uh, that, that Cyrus was just getting started. Cyrus kind of gets the ball rolling on some of the national restoration. And then, and then the Lord uh, goes from there. So... Um, I do want to actually. I think. I think we can actually kind of summarize this next. Um, these these next chapters to to meet our goal here. Um, in forty six, he's going to show why Babylon falls, and why Babylon falls is because Babylon just worships idols, and also because Babylon is is proud. Um, and 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 loves loves pleasure more than anything else. So uh, listen to this uh, about Babylon. Uh, now there, this is forty seven eight. Now therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, "I am." And that's the, that's the Lord's language. I am. There's no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. So why is Babylon going to go down? Uh, why is God going to allow Cyrus to, to, to destroy them? Because of Babylon's pride and their thought that, you know, that they're untouchable. And then in 48, what the Lord says is, I'm going to... Use this whole exile to, to kind of winnow down my people, to strengthen them, to refine them. Um, and, and, uh, and then when I get to the end of 48, because I know we're about to lose people, here's what he says about you know, how they should think of this now. All the stuff he's told them about the future. 48.17, let me read this to you in its entirety. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name never would have been cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow from them from the rock. 
He split the rock and water gushed out. See, that's Exodus language. It's the second Exodus all over again. That's, that's all you, you remember those stories probably from Numbers. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. So at the end of all this description of how he's going to do it, through the servant, by national and then spiritual reformation, um, and then through Cyrus, um, the Lord at the end kind of says, oh, you know, I wish it hadn't had to go this way. There was a much better way for you. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't have led to your being cut off. Now he's speaking to the generation that Isaiah is preaching to. Oh, there's, this is what I'm going to do. But if you would only listen to me now, I wouldn't have had to destroy so many of your descendants. I wouldn't have had to have you go through this whole period of exile and judgment. Um, it, 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 would have been, it would have been so much easier. I've been speaking to you for your prophet. So, so that then should reverberate with us today. Obviously, we're on the other side of these exile events and pouring out of the Spirit and the coming of the Messiah. We're on the other side of those events. But that call at the end of 48 is the same, which is the Lord says, oh, I mean, I'm going to accomplish my purposes. That's not any question. And we could add to the list of eschatological events that we know of now that they didn't even know about. The Lord's going to say, Lord says to us, you know, I'm going to do all these things that I've promised to do. Uh, I'm, I'm going to judge everybody. I'm going to save those who are trusting in Christ. I'm going to return. Uh, Christ is going to return one day. I'm going to establish a new heavens and a new earth. I mean, we could list all those things. I'm going to do that. But, but if you listened now, you could avoid all the coming judgment. If you listen now, your your children wouldn't have had to go through all that. And so that call at the end of 48. Remember how how we began this section. You're a people who don't listen. I've shown you many things. I've said many things. You're not listening. And then at the end, it's this plaintiff. If only you have list, would have listened. Because what do we know? What have we learned about what's happening with Israel? We've learned that there's no peace for the wicked. That it will never go well. And they'll face, and they'll face great judgment. Even though the Lord will completely fulfill his promises. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time that you've given to us. We know that we are just barely even scratching the surface of your word, what riches there are for us in your word. So thank you for it. Thank you for the instruction we receive and the, and the confrontation that we receive by your spirit through your word. May, may we not resist that. May we open our ears to what you have to say to us. And we ask this in Christ's name.